All right, guys. Well, welcome back to the Buck Fever podcast. As always, I am Noah, and filling in for Jake this week, we have Pat Colby, and we have another guest with us this week. We're switching gears a little bit. Um, last week was Dave Constantine. He's, um, as most of you probably heard, a, a world-class turkey call carver, and this week we are switching over to some fishing and specifically walleyes and we're going to be touching on walleyes for tomorrow quite a bit as an organization and who better to talk about walleyes and walleyes for tomorrow than mike arrowwood who's our guest this week so um first off mike how are you this evening well i'm fine a little bit late for the conversation but i'm fine (laughs) no it's all good it's all good um, so yeah, we're, we're just going to chat walleyes and, and get to know you a little bit. So I'll let Colby kind of take over here. Yeah. Hey Mike, how's it going? Uh, first off, just, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, who you are, where you live, what do you do for a living? Well, I, one, I'm retired. I worked for Alliance Energy for 24 years as an electrician prior to that, uh, Chicago Northwestern Railroad for, uh, 10 years as an electrician. Prior to that, I received a BS in agriculture with a degree in forest management from Oklahoma State University. Um, my father was in the Air Force, so I have lived in seven different states and the island of Puerto Rico. In the past, moved to Wisconsin in 1960, 1972 permanently. So, um, yeah, made Wisconsin home. Nice. Uh, what part of the state do you live in currently then? Uh, well, Lamartine. Most people don't know where Lamartine is. It's uh, southwest of Fond du Lac off of 151. We live out in the country. Oh, so, nice. nice. Um, not, far, not far from the lake. All right, all right. Well, before we dive into the Wallace for Tomorrow stuff, let's just talk a little uh, outdoors and, and fishing, I guess. How did you uh, get started into the outdoors and what outdoor activities do you participate in? Obviously, I'm guessing fishing is, is one of them, but any other things that you take part in? Sure. Well, I, I am a bow hunter. Um, I'm a gun hunter by default, but uh, my primary emphasis in the fall is bow hunting. Um, I've Shot a few turkeys in my life, but I'd rather watch them and shoot them, so I don't do that too often. Um, walleyes obviously take up 90% of my time nowadays. <laughs> um, we have a cabin up in northern Wisconsin, up in Taylor County, so uh, occasionally we go snowshoeing up there in the wintertime. But, um, yeah, these kind of things. I go to Colorado. <laughs> this will be my 27th year going to Colorado bow hunting for elk. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, I... Man, I like to go to, well, I've had three trips to Devil's Lake, and this coming winter, I think we're going to go over on the Mississippi and do some airboat fishing on the sloughs in the wintertime, sure. if we have good ice. <laughs> going for those big perch over there? Really, yeah. Yep, yep. So, uh, fishing-wise, do you have a favorite body of water? Would it be the hometown or home area of Lake Winnebago system here, or do you got a different body of water that like would truly be your favorite that you love fishing on? No, uh, I could say I grew up on Winnebago, similar to what you did. You know, when I moved to Wisconsin in 72, I didn't know what a walleye was. And uh, soon after, bought a boat, and I've fished Winnebago now for 50 years. So that's the body of water I know best and prefer to fish. 
Um, I, actually, I've only I've only been to Green Bay one time, which was last summer, um, just because I can I can catch anything and everything pretty much I want to catch on Winnebago. So I love Green Lake, and I I really enjoy Beaver Dam Lake when the fish population has not suffered a winter kill over there. Sure, but um, Big Green is a hmm, a difficult lake to fish, but it's fun. Lots of fish. Nice. Yeah, that's. Uh, I know Colby. He does quite a bit of fishing at Green Bay, and that can be a good spot. I I've never really um, dove into any fishing up there. Um, I would say for sure, Lake Winnebago is probably one of our primary spots, and then, um, like you said, Green Lake can be good. Fox Lake, some of those lakes um, that are sort of nearby. Um, so, what about when it comes to eating fish if you're going to go out for a friday night fish fry what would be your go-to spot i virtually never go out to eat for fish because i'm never i'm never without fish let's put it that <laughs> way uh, um and, and that's a fact i very seldom go out for fish um my, when my wife and i go out to eat it's typically not for fish um so that's a that's an easy one for me I, I trout fish up on the, the McCann up by between Red Granite and Watoma, and between the McCann between my trout fishing and Lake Winnebago, you know, with with perch and bluegill and walleye, I don't suffer for for lack of fish. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah, that's a good answer. I I'll be honest with you too. It's hard to beat uh, the fish that you can fry up uh, at your own house. The ones that you caught, you know, and and you know that they're fresh and throw them in a good batter. It's really, really hard to beat that. So, um, how about any other wild game? You got any other wild game favorite recipes? We're always talking food and stuff. Uh, we always like to just get everybody's little take on some of their favorite recipes or ways they like to prepare food. So you said you're a bow hunter. What's your favorite whitetail or way to cook venison? On the grill. Um, and not overcooked, obviously, um, medium rare at best. Um, and, I will sometimes marinate it, but uh, typically I prefer venison just on the grill. And um, otherwise, a, a meal that most people don't eat anymore is squirrel. Um, I, I I grew up squirrel hunting, and I'm an avid squirrel hunter. And they're, you can, uh, the taste of squirrel is is excellent. And all we do is put it in a in a crock pot with you know typical gravy and onions and potatoes and uh, let it cook for a while and it gets so tender it falls off the bone but most people nowadays don't squ don't squirrel hunt but uh it's it's a good good exercise if you want to do it yeah how would you relate or what would you compare the taste of squirrel to what other cut of meat um, or is it um unique in its own right it I've, kind I've of is you know there so. Oh well, squirrel. You know they're they're totally vegetarians. Um, have you ever had muskrat shanks? I have not. Okay, it's, it's, <laughs> I could tell you it's very similar to muskrat shanks. Okay. Uh, then again, that's another vegetarian. You know, uh, so and and you can cook them. Uh, you know, pretty much the same way. You don't want to try fry them. Um, but uh, I've never had fried squirrel. It's always been in a in some sort of a stew or a or a slow cooker type menu. But um, yeah, it like I said, it's very, very tender, 
um, falls off the bone and is easily prepared. Squirrels, most people don't know, are, are horrible to skin. Uh, you have to be pretty good at it and, and know what to do to skin a squirrel properly. So um, something different. So with my usual co-host, we, we tend to go rabbit and squirrel hunting um, a time or two in the winter. And I think that's what I've heard a lot of people doing with that small game is just kind of putting in a slow cooker, making a stew out of it. But I think opposite squirrels, I think rabbits are pretty easy to skin. Correct? Definitely. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At one time, a friend of mine and I, we owned five beagles and that was back in the days when I worked for the railroad and we both work third shift, so every morning we get off, go grab the beagles, and go rabbit hunting. And um, we gave rabbits to everybody you can imagine to give rabbits to. Um, I That was a good time in my life. So I've also heard that elk is, like, really, really good. I've never had it personally, but I think a lot of people who hunt deer and elk would prefer elk meat to venison. Would you say you're kind of in a similar camp? Um. Yes. Um, uh, you know, venison, uh, the tenderloins and uh, the back straps are, are probably, you know, the most um, delicious part of it. I mean, the steaks are, are fine, too. But, but with an elk, uh, they are very lean, like, like whitetails are, obviously. So, again, you, you can't overcook them. But it is a whole different flavor. And uh, elk is excellent, excellent meat. That's what I've heard as well. I have not had too many. I might have had like an elk burger or something in my life, but I haven't uh, had any elk steak or anything like that. But I've heard it's it's excellent. Actually, mm-hmm. one of my good buddies, uh, him and his wife both hunt, and but his wife doesn't really like whitetail venison, but she loves elk meat. So huh. he always gets the green light whenever he wants to go out <laughs> west to go hunt because uh, she's just hoping he can bring some elk back home. So, um, no, I love the stories about uh small game hunting and stuff like that and and chasing rabbits and stuff i think uh we're missing a lot of that in our young hunters today and i can even say i haven't done that myself but i really always enjoy hearing those stories of that's how you got to spend a lot of your time when you were a youth going out and do those things and that you know kind of jump started you into the outdoors and into hunting and stuff like that i always think that's super cool and enjoy hearing those stories so well, let's turn the page on to walleyes. Um, can you give us a little background on your current role with walleyes for tomorrow? And maybe, or maybe even backtrack from that. How did you first get involved with walleyes for tomorrow and then into your current role today? Well, um, we started, okay, I facilitated the first meeting of a bunch of local people here in Fond du Lac to uh, talk about doing something for the walleye population on Winnebago back in the eighties. Um, we had had a number of years, five years actually of virtually no water in the spawning marshes up in the river. And a lot of folks were being coming concerned because by and large, the majority of the fish that spawn spawn in the, in either the Fox or the Wolf river in the system. So we got together, and we have a group here in, in Final I call the Winnebago Land Conservation Alliance. So I got hold of a bunch of guys from our alliance that I knew liked to fish, and there were some other folks, actually some folks from Ducks Unlimited. Um, and we had a meeting, sat down, decided, well, we should do something. 
So we formed the Fond du Lac chapter and had a fundraising banquet, uh, just like DU and uh, Trout and everybody else does, and raised a whopping $8,000 the first year. <laughs> so that's what got us started. Um, I was the first secretary of Walleyes for Tomorrow. And because our first project cost us $154,000 and we had a whole $8,000 in the bank, um, I became chapter development coordinator and started the next eight chapters around the Winnebago system um, to help pay off that debt, which we did, obviously. Sure. And since that time, I've had every position in Walleyes for Tomorrow except for treasurer. Uh, I'm currently board my chairman of the board of directors. Um, our board of directors are the chapter chairman of the chapters of was that are in Wisconsin. Uh, we have monthly meetings and we have our annual meeting in September. So um, my role is to make sure whatever the board of directors decides we want to do at our annual meeting, hopefully get done. Um, that's my job, I guess. So with I, a few others. <laughs> I have to ask, what, what was that first project? Um, okay. Well, we, we went to, we went to Oshkosh and we had some very, um, progressive and aggressive biologists up there, Ron Brook, Kendall Kampke, Dan Foltz, and some other guys. And we asked them what we could do that would give us the biggest bang for our buck. And they said, get rid of the boil hole below the Eureka Dam. Um, hmm. The Eureka Dam is a low, what's called a low head dam. And the water comes over the dam and drops straight down rather than having a, a spillway type effect. And it, it scours out a big deep boil hole. And um, Gordy Priegel, who was our biologist back in the 60s and 70s, had documented that virtually every fry of every species of fish that was spawned in the Fox River died in that boil hole. So their suggestion was fill in the boil hole, which we did. <laughs> uh, we hired Radke Construction Company out of Winnicani. Um, he brought a big barge up, two barges actually, and his tugboat up and, and two quad axle dump trucks and they would pull up on shore and uh, the, the dump trucks would run up onto the barges and he would back up to the dam and dump. And it took 12 quad axle dump trucks in one spot to bring the rock to the surface. That's how deep that boil hole was. Holy cow. So, yeah, it, it was it was quite a project. Um, Michael's Corporation uh, did some um, boulder blasts, if you will, to, to supply us with large boulders rather than having, you know, small rock. Um, but we turned the boil hole into a rapids. So now when the fry come down river every year, they, they go through a rapids rather than getting caught in this boil hole. So that's, that's, that was our first project. <laughs> so I'm, I'm certainly not saying at all that I don't trust that that's a better thing for the fish. It's just more as an informative question. Um, how, how do you do that research to find out that that boil hole was harming the fish population and that what you did after that, um, you know, was helping them then? What does that research look like to kind of show the statistics on that? Okay, well, 
what what we know is Gordy Priegel, uh, he took walleye fry, um, fry or freshly hatched walleye eggs, and he dyed them various colors, green and brown and blue, and he deposited them in the river above the above the dam, and then below the dam he installed nets that were designed to catch these small fish when they came downstream, and he never found a live fry from all of the fry that he had dumped in above the dam. Wow. He never caught a, he never caught a live one below the dam. Uh, these dams are, I mean, if you go over one of these dams uh, in a canoe or a boat and you have a life jacket on, there's a very good chance you will drown because the water goes straight down and it comes, washes downstream of it and it circles back up. So if you go over, it'll force you underwater because of the volume and you'll go along the bottom, you'll pop up and then the current is going back toward the dam. It'll ju it just catches you in this circular motion. Um, we had a swimming coach from the city of Fondelac died in the boil hole below a dam over by Sheboygan a few years ago. Yeah, that's so they're that's, dangerous. They're very dangerous. And that's what happens to the fry then. They get ground up in that boil hole. Sure. Mm. So did you start seeing immediate like dividends off of that project? No, no. There's, there's so many factors affecting, affecting successful, hatch and survival of walleye fry it's uh, we could talk we could have four conversations about that topic um it's um anything from weather to dissolved oxygen content to predation to you know the, the health of the female the health of her eggs um fertilization there's oh believe me that's a that's an involved topic if you had to give us like the top three or four factors in like having a good hatch um in a spring what would those top factors be well if you talk winnebago okay yeah. uh obviously it's water yeah yeah the, we've done we wallace for tomorrow have construct have accomplished 27 what we call spawning marsh habitat projects on the wolf and what the majority of them are for is to increase or prolong water flow in these marshes uh, in the spring of the year. Most of these marshes are dry in the summertime. They're not wet marshes. But when the river comes up in the spring, um, they flood and female walleyes go in, deposit their eggs, and then the eggs need to incubate. So one, you need to have sufficient water flow for the females to be enticed to go into the marsh. And then you have to have water flow long enough in the marsh to allow the eggs to incubate. And that is totally dependent on water temperature. Um, I can tell you at our Green Lake hatchery, we use artesian well water. And at 54 degrees, 24-7, they hatch in 16 to 20 days. So if you get a cold spell, it delays them. We just had a hatchery down in Little Cedar Lake by West Bend this year. We put the first eggs in the hatchery on the 30th of March, and we turned the last little guys loose on the 8th of May. Um, so that was a real drawn-out, long process because water temperature was cold this spring. Um, the third thing, obviously, is predation um, and food. Um, you have to have a sufficient amount of zooplankton and phytoplankton in a water body. Um, because once the, 
when the egg hatches, you, you get a little, they're called larvae. They're not even a fully formed little fish. But after about four days, they need to eat. And the things they eat are macroscopic and microscopic. And if you don't have sufficient amount of that kind of food for them, they starve to death. So, um, and then predation, obviously. Um, everything eats these little globs of protein. <laughs> uh, every minnow, every fingerling bass, bluegill, crappie, blue, you name it, eat these little guys. So, sure, sure. Uh, those are pretty much the top factors. What, going on that food factor, what can make, what am I trying to say? What can influence on, on having that, you know, a good source of that food available versus it not being available for those fry? Um, a couple things. One is temperature. Um, in the spring of the year, you know, everything has been dormant all winter. And you need a good pulse in temp water temp to get the phytoplankton. Phytoplankton are single-celled algae that are in the water. You need a pulse of them to feed the zooplankton. Zooplankton are primarily uh, vegetarians. So um, if you get a good pulse of water temperature um, and nutrients too, because uh, phytoplankton, meaning that they're plants, they need a good supply of phosphorus and nitrogen to be able to multiply well and good sunlight. So if you get a prolonged period of <laughs> dreary weather like we had this spring, that affects that. Uh, and some lakes, some bodies of water are pretty much phytoplankton deficient. Um, um, we, we walleyes for tomorrow, when we run our hatcheries and we turn the little fry loose, uh, we do what's called, we pull what's called a plankton tow. It's a net that's designed to catch plankton. You put it in the water behind the boat and you pull it for about five minutes and then you bring it out and you look and see how much zooplankton is, is, is collected in the wild and at the end of it. And that's where we determine where to turn our little fish loose when we turn them loose in the lake. And not every part of a lake has a sufficient amount for us to be happy with. Let's put it that way. Hmm. Way more going into it than I ever would have would have guessed there. I was, you know, the general walleye fan here just, you think high water in the spring? Oh, it's going to be a great hatch this year. Low water in the spring? Oh, it'll be maybe not so good, but obviously there's a lot of different factors that go into that, that whole process. Yeah, there is. And, and you know, the biggest hatch that we've ever seen on Winnebago was in 2012. Um, the, the, the hatches on the Winnebago system are judged by how many fall fingerlings are caught in the trawler that the DNR runs the first week of August, September, and October every year. Yeah. And um, when they when they do this, they, they sample 46 places every week um, for those three months. And if you get an average of seven fall fingerlings, that's considered an average hatch. Um, this year we had 17 was the average. Nice. And the 2012 hatch was even more than that. The, if you don't have sufficient forage, um, many of those will die. They starve to death. You know, there, there's only so much food to go around. So what's really a better determination of success is how many yearlings you see the following year in the trawler rather than how many you see in the fall that were born in April or hatched 
or spawned in April. So it's it's quite a process. Sure. So if those fish can make it to like a year old there or to yearling status, they're much more likely to, you know, continue to survive then is what you're saying. Yep. They're good. They're pretty much good to go. I mean, they can still be eaten by something, but yep. by the time they're a yearling, they're, they're four to nine inches long. So they can, they can pretty much fare for themselves. Okay. Okay. So how would you kind of rate, how the Lake Winnebago system is, is currently at its current state, its uh, overall health, the walleye population? Well, as you probably know, uh, people are grousing that there's a lot of, not a lot of big fish, but most of that's caused by exploitation. There's a lot of fishermen out there taking fish out of the lake. Sure. But there are there is a good number of walleyes in the lake. Uh, figure... If you get seven fall fingerlings in on an average trawl in this fall, Winnebago is 138,000 acres times seven. That means there's 760,000 little five to seven inch walleye swimming around out there in the fall. And, you know, some something's going to eat some of them. Some are going to starve to death uh, this year. <laughs> you know, that's a factor of two, uh, two plus because there were so many. Mm -hmm. uh, the good thing is we have an excellent forage base right now. Um, most people don't know what trout perch are, but trout perch are right now the primary food source for small walleyes. Uh, trout, an adult trout perch is only four inches long, so most people never see them. But um, in the fall, the average uh, young of the year trout perch is maybe an inch to an inch and a half long, and that's what these little walleyes need to feed on. And right now, the, the Salt perch population is phenomenal. So sure. actually it's at record levels. Yeah, I've actually caught a few, believe it or not. I think a couple trolling got hooked up uh, on some hooks, and I've caught a few jigging as well in the last year. So uh, I don't think I can ever say that before this last year. So that that population must be must be really, really good. And I even ice fishing this year in some of the, the back bays and shallows, the, the amount of minnows just swim you'd see swimming underneath the hole was astounding to see how much bait yep. and forage is in the system so a very healthy <laughs> ecosystem right now yeah so kind of to piggyback off of that um it's a question that would relate to pretty much any species but whitetail specifically is what i can relate it to um you know so what kind of an age structure are you looking for in these fish you talk about how people are, are complaining that maybe there's not as many big ones out there you know if you were looking at white-tailed deer you're gonna in, in any given population you're probably gonna have more deer that are younger and then as they get older and older there's gonna be less and less so that obviously makes sense but what what are you looking for in a walleye population as far as what percentages of, of each age structure should there be That's a good question. <laughs> um, well, you need a sufficient number of mature females to spawn to, you know, carry on the population. And here's what we know, and this does not relate to any other body of water. It's Winnebago specific because the study was done on Winnebago. Uh, Ryan Koenigs, who was a biologist at Oshkosh, we paid for a study. He looked at the dead females on the at the otter street and merck national tournaments and you can tell by 
when you open up a female, you can tell whether she spawned once or not by the color of their egg producing organs. And what he found was that 80% of the five-year-old females had not spawned once and 80% of the six-year-old fish had spawned once, at least once. Uh, so that age group is, is what that age group and older is what you really need to have in the system to be able to support um, a, sp a good spawning activity. So how how big on average, I guess, would a five to six year old female be? There is no average. Okay. I get asked that all the time. It, it's totally dependent on how how good their diet has been over the course of their life. Uh, fish grow in direct relationship to how much they have to eat. And um, you can, you can, and I said, this study was just on Winnebago. I mean, you can go in, there's a population of walleyes in Northern Quebec that don't become sexually mature until they're 15 years old. Wow. So, yeah, I, that, that's what I said when, when I read that. Uh, wow. Um, so, it, it, you know, it's 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 hard to say i'm sure you know those guys measured the fish they they learn how old they are by in a fish's head there's a bone called the otolith bone uh it's part of their sensory perception system and you can take that otolith bone out and you can slice it and stain it and you can actually count the growth rings like you count the growth rings on a tree so that's how they determine the age of those five and six year old fish was by uh, slicing the otoliths on this was 3,000 dead fish so they looked at 3,000 otoliths and uh, to get this get the determination of this this age structure for maturity is there a certain age that the walleyes are like most productive when it comes to reproduction or whether it's an age or a size especially well i i can tell you the okay. system <laughs> Well, I can tell you when we we walleyes for tomorrow run portable fish hatcheries, um, and we don't strip the eggs from any fish larger than 24 inches. Uh, we're looking for fish in the 18. I mean, I was up at Monaco last week, and we had a female that was only only just over 15 inches, and she had uh, maybe maybe 200 eggs in her. Uh, so she was, and I can't tell you how old she was, but um, if you can, if you can get these eighteen to twenty-four inch fish in large numbers, uh, that's where you're going to get the largest bang for your buck. Not the num largest number of eggs, because at Mon at Manitowish Waters, we had a twenty-nine inch female that probably gave us, I don't know, one hundred fifty thousand, maybe two hundred thousand eggs. Um, so the big females do produce more eggs, but there's another side issue to that that we could go into, but it gets a little complicated, but. Interesting. Yeah. That's a whole bunch of, I mean, the, you know, how you age the fish, like a tree. I mean, I've never, I've never known any of that. So that's all like really, really good information. Cause you know, and even talking about the size to age correlation, I feel like that's something that going back to white-tailed deer, that's kind of almost directly how you age them is by looking at the 
their body size and their antler size. And obviously it's, it's not an exact science if you're just doing it, you know, off the hoof based on trail camera pictures or what you see or whatever. But, you know, as a fisherman, if you're out catching fish and you don't want to maybe keep fish that are going to be in their prime reproductive, you know, time frame, and, and you're trying to do your part, you know, it's kind of interesting that there's not necessarily a specific size that you could say oh this is one that i definitely don't want to keep i mean like you said there's a range but you know it's that's kind of kind of an interesting topic i mean it makes it more difficult as a fisherman i guess but you know what are what are some things that just the average joe fisherman could do to do their part for you know conservation take the big fish out okay Hmm. so Uh, yeah if you get it, okay, I said it was complicated, but it's not, okay? On, we had a hatchery on Lake Geneva for five years, and one year, uh, the first day we set the nets, we had only four large females, and I mean, these were 28 to 30-inch females. Um, because we typically have prohibition, but it was the first day, the guy said, they, they went ahead and they stripped the eggs and fertilized the eggs. And we put them in incubation cylinders in our hatchery. So we had them in three and a third incubation cylinders. And over the course of the next week, they filled all 16 incubation cylinders in the hatchery. And over the course of of that week, half of the eggs from those large females died. Hmm. I mean, we fertilized them. We handled them the same way we do it. We all do all other fish. And then the, the other 12 jars, that were in the hatchery, we probably got, we typically get 85 to 90% hatch. Uh, fertilization is an imperfect process, so we don't get 100% fertilization. But um, that that's that was the impetus behind us not using large females anymore to um, put in our hatcheries. We're, we're in the volume. <laughs> and uh, if we get, if we get 50% die off, that's, totally unacceptable for our purposes so it's better to keep the bigger ones because their eggs whatever it is their, their survival rate is so much less than a more medium-sized fish well yeah that's what we've seen but like i said the the the, the flip side of that is that big female we had up at manitwish waters i mean 150,000 to 200,000 eggs from one fish is a lot of a lot of eggs uh, whereas we've run a hatchery now in Green Lake for 18 years, and we keep track of average number of eggs we get per female. And again, over there, we try not to f- strip any eggs out of fish over 24 inches. And we, what we know is we average 85,000 eggs per fish. Um, and that's fish in the 16 to 24 inch range. So, you know, and, and if you take the eggs from the big females, you obviously you get a lot more. Um, and so you if you if you do get more mortality, well, it's offset by the fact that you got more eggs to begin with. And that's the only reason we kept them up at Manitwish Waters, because they don't have the ability to catch a lot of fish up there. Um, and so we we took the eggs and we put up with the mortality that we get interesting so then i'm still trying to completely grasp on why taking out some of them bigger fish would be 
the most beneficial if they still produce a you know a high volume of eggs even if their you know fertility rate's not as high they you know like you said offset by the number of eggs that are there why would it be a good thing to take those fish out versus something else or the younger ones I've never been part of these studies, but, and these are analytical type studies that I'm not that familiar with. Sure. But if you consider the amount of food that a large fish consumes, the amount of forage that a large fish consumes versus a smaller fish, and you take into consideration the survivability of their eggs, um, the the effect on the total population of fish in the system is more negatively impacted by large fish than medium-sized fish. I guess. And that's, not, that's all fish. That makes a ton of sense. You know? That makes a ton of sense on that. I would think, too, that time has to be a factor in that, where even those bigger fish that produce more eggs with a higher mortality rate that offsets, their time might be coming a little bit sooner than the younger ones to where they're not going to be, you know, they're going to die and they're not going to be producing any longer. And the younger ones, the more medium sized fish would have more years to reach that point. So I, I would think that that would have something to do with it too. Yeah. They live a long time and, and they, they don't stop producing eggs. Um, the oldest fish that the DNR guys up at Oshkosh on Winnebago have ever oldest female that they've ever aged was 19 years old. Uh, so they, they can live a long time. And, you know, it's, it's making the assumption they start to spawn at six. Uh, she spawned successfully for 12 years. Uh, and that's a good thing, you know. So it, it, it's really it's personal preference. Um, I, I, I don't get excited when people tell me they keep big fish. I get more excited when they tell me they keep 11 inch fish than I do when, when they tell me they, they kept a 27 or 28 inch fish. So sure. Sure. All right. So let's go back to Wally's for tomorrow a little bit and some of the, the projects and stuff that you guys have done. What are, and I've seen the list. It's, it's a, you know, a, a great laundry list of, all kinds of projects all over the system and, and other bodies of water. But what, what would you consider some of the major milestones or projects that uh, Wally's for Tomorrow has completed over the you know last 15 to 20 years on this system? Well, our hat, well, not on this system. On this system? Um, well, you could, you, honestly, you could go anywhere, the whole state. Yep, just any okay. major project. Well, on, on the Winnebago system, I'll, I'll – I can tell you flat out, um, for for many, many, many years, people built roads across the spawning marshes. And they put a little culvert in, you know, a 12, 13-inch culvert, whatever, and that, that kept the road from washing away. But that didn't, that really restricted walleyes. A female walleye won't go into a marsh that back floods. Uh, she needs active water flow. And then again, when the fry hatch, they have to be able to get out of the marsh into the river or they die in the marsh. They, they can't swim as such. And so our biggest accomplishment on both the fox and the wolf is working with local private landowners. We've only done one project on public land. All of our projects are, are handshake projects with people that buy on to, to 
what we tell them is good for the population. Uh, we'll take out a, a we'll take out I'd say a 12 inch 14 inch culvert and we put in three 36 inch culverts. They're oval culverts to to allow more water to flow in the marshes. Um, the other thing that we do is on the upper end of a marsh we do what's called a bank cut. Uh, we use a laser level and shoot the level of the marsh, and then we cut through the riverbank level with the level of the marsh. And it can be anywhere from, you know, 20 to 36 inches of riverbank. And we make these cuts 40 feet wide and however long they need to be to cut through the bank. And what that does is it allows, as soon as the river rises to the level of the marsh, water will start to flow into the marsh. Whereas before, it had to rise to the level of the top of the riverbank to get into these marshes. So that's that's the majority of what we've done on the Fox and the Wolf River. Um, can, can on I, other can bodies, I, can I ask you a question on that? Have were most private landowners pretty responsive or willing to take on these projects that you guys you know proposed on their on their land? Well, we cheat. <laughs> our, our project coordinator on the Wolf is a, is a guy named Todd Close. He's from New London, and he he lives on the river, so he knows most of the people up, or not most. He knows a lot of the people up there, so he is our contact person, not me down here in Fond du Lac. Sure, sure. So um, there's a lot of built-in it, relationships already established yep. there, so it makes it a little yep. bit easier. Works, wo works wonders. It sure, does. Yep. Sure. Um, the other thing is our, our walleye wagons, uh, our hat, portable hatcheries, um, and our right now the, the latest fantastic numbers I heard, uh, we have a hatchery on Pewaukee Lake. When we started there, the walleye population was judged to be 0.14 walleyes per acre. Uh, ben, the wildlife biologist, did a survey on Pewaukee last year and judges the population to be 17 walleyes per acre. Wow, that's quite That's unreal. Yep. It is. <laughs> it floored me when I heard those numbers. Um, uh, those are hard numbers. And um, um, it, it's a good thing. Um, on Big Green Lake, we've had that hatchery over here for a very long time, like I said, and, and and we're now we're releasing right now. Well, they just finished releasing. They had over 11 million eggs in the hatchery. They, I don't have the last numbers yet. Somewhere in the 9.5 million little walleyes were put back into Big Green, and um, the walleye population in Big Green is phenomenal. I mean, um, the number of fish that they are in that lake is superb. Shauna Lake is another lake that's done just tremendous. Uh, and we've had tremendous success up on Shauna Lake. Um, and, well, we have we have several hatcheries around the state. We just started working on the Monaco chain uh, last year. This is our second year on the Monaco chain. Um, but we've been up on the Red Cedar River by Rice Lake for a number of years. And the biologists up there told the guys, hey, if you don't want to run it this year, it's fine by him. The Walleye population is doing well. So our hatcheries work, um, and it's fun, a lot of work, but um, it's something we're proud of. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, we were ice fishing um, up on the Monaco chain this winter, and, boy, we caught, <laughs> not targeting them, but caught a ton of ton of walleyes um, up there. It was good to see, good to see that because I know that's like a, what is that, about an eight-year project they 
got going on with the system being closed and trying to rebuild that population? No, it's already been closed for ten, and it will be okay. closed for for it'll it'll be closed for another four. The agreement this year, past year was for it to be closed for a number another four. Yeah, the, the the population up there, there's a problem up there, and nobody knows what it is. In 2012, natural reproduction virtually went to zero, and it always it always been some amount of natural reproduction on the chain that was detectable by surveys. In 2012, it essentially dropped to zero, and it's been that way since. Hmm. Um, and we, last year, released, um, I'm going to say, three million little fry into the Monaco chain. Um, we don't have trouble getting females. We have trouble getting enough males to fertilize the eggs. Huh. Um they set the nets a week ago Friday, and I was up there Monday, and the hatchery was filled Monday afternoon with somewhere around 5 million eggs. Um, and they're in the process of incubating right now. They'll be hatching probably next week. So uh, we're trying to hypothetically, you know, on any fertilization, natural fertilization, you're going to get a 50-50 split male and female produced. Um so hopefully we're putting a sufficient number of males and you won't know this until, you know, the little males, they get sexually mature when they're about four, maybe. Okay. Uh, so it'll be a couple of years before we see any of them show up sure, before we set sure. the fight nest. So aside from certain private landowners, are there other organizations that you work with on certain projects besides walleyes for tomorrow? Um, lake associations, yes. Um, lake associations and lake protection districts. Um, we, we try to encourage them to do habitat work. Uh, one of the habitat things that we're really pushing now is trees in the water. And I'm not talking fish sticks. Uh, fish sticks are where you anchor the trees to the shore and they're, you know, the top of the trees out of the water and the rest of the tree is submerged. I'm talking taking trees out in 20 to 40 feet of water, weighting them down and sinking them. Um, perch will spawn on sunken trees in 20 to 40 feet of water. And we, Wally's for tomorrow, <clears throat> um, we, we gave UW-Stevens Point Foundation five years ago $200,000 to uh, the interest from that goes to pay for a walleye research project out of UW-Stevens Point every year. And this year we gave them another $100,000, so they'll be getting even more money for walleye research. And this is at the graduate level. Uh, some graduate student will use our money to do walleye research projects. Uh, but we funded a project along with the DNR a few years ago and found that in northern Wisconsin, perch larvae, when a little fish comes out of an egg, it's not a fully formed fish, no matter what kind of fish it is. They're considered larvae because they have a yolk sac attached to their abdomen. But what this study found was that perch larvae are absolutely critical for young of the year fingerling walleyes because the walleyes typically spawn first um and so what we're pushing for with everybody is to start talk, putting trees in the water for perch to spawn on 
And we know it works. Interesting. Yeah, that's. Hmm. That makes Greg Sass, who Greg Sass, who runs the Escanaba Research Station. I'm on the Conservation Congress, and this weekend we had our annual convention up in Oshkosh, and Greg Sass, who's a lead researcher from. Uh, it's Bureau of Science Services, it's called. He put on a presentation about the effects of having wood in the water. and But he was talking fish sticks. Um, and it was a very good, it adds carbon to the, to the water body. Um, and plants need carbon for reproduction. And it's, it's all about having carbon, having algae and freshwater sponges and other things for the bottom of the food chain to feed on. And in this case, have perch to spawn on. So it's a huge deal. So if you could put it into words... Um, you know, as far as like, what, what is walleyes for tomorrow? What's the goal? What are, what are we trying to achieve? Increase production. Increase production. That's what we've been, that's what we've been about since day one. Gotcha. Yep. If you, if you read our, our mission statements from day one, it's about the increased production of walleyes in the state, in the public waters of the state of Wisconsin. How many different chapters has that expanded to now from that initial, you know, Fond du Lac branch that you were part of? We were up to 16. I think now we're down to 11. Chapters come and go. Um, People get old (laughs) and get tired of running fundraising banquets and that kind of thing. And quite frankly, the younger generation has no inclination to step up and and help uh, with fundraising. Um, but, um, right now we have 11 active chapters throughout the state. So that might be one, I'm going to jump to this question, but that might be one of the answers to this. Uh, we have a question here, like what are some of the future barriers or threats that our walleye population could potentially face? And do you think it could be like, you know, the aging of some of these organizations and volunteers? And like you said, the younger generation not being involved in this and, and realizing how much you guys really do to to support all of these systems across the state? Um, Actually, that's a small factor. The biggest factor is the Department of Natural Resources does no habitat work for the benefit of walleyes. Don't fund any habitat work. I mean, you go to, you talk about Trout Unlimited, you know, Trout Unlimited has a stamp, which is a segregated fund, which the politicians can't touch. So they have that batch of money every year. There is no dedicated funding for ha- for in-lake habitat kind that helps walleyes. That's our biggest threat. Um, the Department of Natural Resources. Has there ever been that funding or or not? To some degree, yes, but, um, well, you know, there's not been a general fishing license increase in the state of Wisconsin for 18 years. I mean, our fishing license costs the same today as it did 18 years ago. Uh, If it weren't for the sport, for the Federal Sport Fish Restoration Act monies, that's the excise tax on hunting and fishing equipment and that sort of thing, coming into the state, um, the Wisconsin DNR would be bankrupt. 
Um, the fishing licenses don't supply enough money um, to finance the, all the activities of the Department of Natural Resources. Um, they only get 5% of their total budget in, from what's called GPR money. That's called general purpose revenue money from the taxpayers of the state of Wisconsin. So if people are hearing that and they're not liking what they're hearing, is there anything that can be done to try to change that? Um, you want you want it straight? Get different legislatures in Madison. Okay. Um, the, leg, the legislators in Madison refuse to even consider. I mean, we have a seven billion dollar surplus in the state of Wisconsin. That's seven thousand million dollars. Yeah. And they can't toss they can't toss a million dollars to the DNR to do some habitat work someplace in the state. I mean, yeah, yeah it's not on their agenda. Let's put it that way. It's I mean, just, it, it still know. blows my mind. I mean, the amount of money that's spent in this state on walleye fishing and tourism for walleye fishing and traveling up north, they're traveling, you know, destination lakes like the Bay of Green Bay, Lake Winnebago, all that stuff and we don't have any money set aside for walleye habitat improvement that's just kind of floor or any any kind of fish habitat right any right. other than trout any kind of fish habitat improvement yeah well we did a we walleys for tomorrow we financed a study oh gosh this is 15 years ago now winnebago at that time was worth 143 fishing on Winnebago, just fishing not boating not whatever fishing on winnebago was worth 143 million dollars in outside money, not not local money, for the five counties around the system. The last number I saw, it's up to $175 million in economic benefit and provides employment for over 4,000 people. Uh, that's just Winnebago itself. We did a study on Green Bay and it's over 200 million. Um, fishing in the state of Wisconsin is a $1.8 billion uh, economic driver for the economy of the state. And you can't get the legislature in Madison to budge on anything. And, and I would, you know, if I had my druthers, people would talk to their legislators. But try to do that. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's, because it's a trick. People can make phone calls and write letters and things like that, right? I mean, just to get you know some sort of some sort of engagement. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, okay, I I just became chairman of the Final Act County Conservation Congress delegation um, last month, and my charge to my other four delegates is we're going to start finding out when our local legislators have their town hall meetings, and we're going to go talk to them. I mean, face to face is the way to the way to do it. Because they see, they get FaceTime with professional lobbyists. They don't get a lot of FaceTime with the general public. Sure. And that's the that's the key is FaceTime with the general public, and us us guys get more money to be spent on the natural resources in the state. Um, that's that's the best way to do it uh, is, is straight up FaceTime. So, and but you need a topic. 
you know, you don't want to go in and, and bore the guy. You need a topic and you need to have a few facts, figures, and numbers in front of you when you're going to go talk to the person. So, but I'd like, that's going to be our impetus, impetus here is to start talking to some legislators. Not, I don't know if it'll do any good, but whatever. Hmm. Yeah, it's worth the try. It's though, worth right? the effort. Yeah. yeah. I mean, nothing's going to, nothing's going to change unless people are, you know, putting the effort in to, to try to change things for the better. So, um, yeah, hats off to that. Switching it up just a little bit. Um, are there any myths that get spread around that people would believe in that could be detrimental to what Walleyes for Tomorrow is trying to accomplish? Well, yeah, there's there's been all kinds of them. Um, there was a there was a myth, you know, the DNR goes goes and we support it. And the DNR goes up on the spawning marshes and they they shock to get. Um, uh, to get fish and they tag these fish they try to tag 5,000 fish a year and the myth was that the, the shocking activity killed the eggs that were in the spawning marshes so we paid for Fred Minkowski who was a researcher at uh, UW-Milwaukee Great Lakes Sport Fish Research Institute to do a study and no, it, it, he found out that the electroshocking on those marshes had no effect on the, on the laying of the eggs. So that was, that was one myth that we were able to debunk. Um, well, um, there, yeah, there was, there was this thing going around that, that the guys weren't seeing a lot of fish going up the Fox River. Um, to spawn and i don't know if you know this there was a project called terrell's island in butamore uh they claimed that uh somehow that terrell's island project was um stopping walleyes or, or or discouraging walleyes from running up the river and that's not true they don't run up the river um i adam nickel who was our biologist here on winnebago put uh, sonic tags in 74 walleyes uh, three years ago now. And um, none of them ran up the Fox River to spawn. Mm. Ten of them spawned in the lake. Seventeen of them were caught. And all the rest of them went up the Wolf River. But none went up the Fox. So um, lots of things to be talked about and lots of things we're learning. Uh, walleyes were, were a big advocate of that. Of, we're a big advocate of sound science. So that like this, this um, tagging, these tags cost $400 a piece. They're surgically implanted in the abdomen of the fish. And there's listening stations all over the system. There has been for a long time for sturgeon. And these tags are registered on the same um, listening stations that the sturgeon tags are, are picked up on. Um, and now we just signed up with, Adam, who's now over Watoma, he put 60 in Puckaway and the upper Fox River to learn what's going on in the Fox River as far as uh, reproduction goes. So um, these are the kinds of things that, that we like to get in, involved in is good, hard science. Yeah, I saw a little bit of that <clears throat> um, study that's going to happen, and that's going to be super interesting to, to just see how and where fish uh, – 
where they go and then where they return to and do they, you know, return to the same or similar areas year after year or how do they, you know, move throughout the entire year. Um, that should be pretty, pretty awesome when that data comes out. Yeah. We just agreed with the biologists from green Bay. Um, he's not going to do it this year. He's doing some preliminary work this year, but next year he's going to tag 5,000 walleyes, a thousand at Marinette, thousand at Peshtigo, thousand at Oconto, a thousand at the pier and a thousand at Sturgeon Bay. Um, and then we, we pay what's called a reward tag. They have a, yep. a fancy red tag in their back. And if you catch one and report it, uh, we pay you a hundred dollars. Um, we're going to, we signed up to for three years of that research project. So we'll be paying reward tags for three years. And that's to offset a myth that there's a cadre of people up there that want to reduce the bag limit on Green Bay to three. And Dave Boyarski, who's the regional fish manager at, at Sturgeon Bay, thinks that they could even go to six, but he has no hard science to support his opinion. And that's the purpose of this study is to see, well, it's called a PE, a population estimate. This three-year study will give us a, a more firm population estimate of the fish in Green Bay. So that's something we're supporting. Nice. That will be awesome to see that data as well Yeah, coming up. So, well, I think we're getting towards the end here. Um, we don't want to keep you too late into the night, but if you could uh, maybe one or two, th what are you most proud of that Wally's for Tomorrow has accomplished over over its uh, lifespan and your, your time involved with it? Getting people involved, without a doubt. Um, if if you would see the, the, the enthusiasm and the, the effort that people put in with our fish hatcheries specifically. I mean, it's, it's a lot of work. I, I put on a training session. Uh, no one works in our hatchery that hasn't gone through our this training session. And I tell people up front, it's a 40-day commitment. If you don't like it, well, either one, we're not going to run the hatchery or you're not the right person to help us. And I see, I meet some of the best people in the state of Wisconsin. I mean, these uh, these folks are dedicated um, they believe in, they believe in us. They believe that what we do is, is going to work and hopefully it does. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, uh, that's the biggest deal is, um, when we run a hatchery, uh, I have, I took photos the other day up at Manaqua, a seven year old boy sitting, stirring fish eggs, uh, during the fertilization process. And there were two little guys there. Nice. One was. One was, we, it, it's a process, but there's two processes. One to fertilize, stir the eggs so that the sperm can bind the egg in a bowl. Mm -hmm. And the other is to keep the eggs from sticking together. And we had seven-year-old kids doing this. And, and that's, that's the best part of the whole deal. I mean, by far, is having the public see what we do. Absolutely. that That's awesome stuff. So if someone wants to to become more involved or be a part of the organization or volunteer in some way, some fashion, like how can they, where should they go? What should they do? How can they get a hold of somebody or what steps should they take? 
Well, some of our more active chapters have Facebook pages. Uh, Sean, for instance, he does a Facebook page every day the whole time the, the eggs are in the hatchery and he's collecting eggs. Uh, they can get re they can get hold of our chapter chairman through Facebook. Um, or it, like it's Wally's for Tomorrow Shawano chapter or Wally's for Tomorrow Fox Valley chapter or Wally's for Tomorrow Green Lake chapter, whatever. Um, or we have a website, wallysfortomorrow.org, and uh, there's a contact link, and those contacts come directly to me. I see all of the contacts. I just had one from a lady that uh, says she's an avid walleye fisherman, wants to know if she can help, and I don't know where she's from, but I told her that, and I said, get back to me, and I'll tell you who to contact. So, you know, uh, we have... Um, we have a range of things that we do, and we do some habitat work that involves people. Uh, we we definitely do the fundraising banquets that, that involve people. Uh, a lot of people can get involved with our hatcheries if they're lo local to where the hatcheries are. So there's always something to do. So are there ways people can get involved, whether it's just a couple hours, a weekend to spare, or you know, major projects? Is there a little something for everybody regardless of their, you know, availability? Um, or is it a not lot, more, usual. lot more bigger stuff? Yeah, unless you want to show up in the wintertime to help mend fight nets. <laughs> <laughs> we, we typically have a couple fight net mending. Uh, and and we, we had two fight net mending projects this winter, and there were some ladies there that, you know, they were part of walleyes for tomorrow. They... They heard about it and showed up, and we showed them how to help mend nets and these kind of things. But uh, we, this is actually, we're coming up on our slow time of year because unless we do a bank cut when the river is down, and that usually involves heavy equipment, you know, hi-ho and, and triaxle trucks and that kind of stuff to move the spoils. So it's, we're not really set up for small projects or, or quick things to do sure. unless we could get some people, some folks interested in putting trees in the water. But then again, it's a planning process and we have to cut the trees and haul the trees and move them around on the lake and weight them down and that kind of stuff. But, um, so yeah. But then even if, if they aren't a hands-on type person, person, all of these chapters still run their like annual banquet, right? Where they could come support, be a part of that, spend some money, get in some, on a bunch of raffles and, or donate some money in, in that way too, right? They can come work. I mean, we're always looking for people to demand the raffle boards and, and, you know, um, yeah, we're always, always needing helpers when it comes time for the banquets. So <clears throat> sure. In all the above. All right. Yeah, I mean, that's, I've learned uh, a whole lot just in this past hour conversation here about, I mean, walleyes in general and, and walleyes for tomorrow. And, you know, all of it has been very informative. Um, it's been a real pleasure getting to have this conversation with you, Mike. Is there anything before we close it out, um, you know, anything we haven't covered, anything that you want to make sure gets said uh, before we wrap this up? Well, what I would love to do, but I don't know, I'm not the best person in the world to do this, would ha be to have 
information sessions to spread the knowledge that we have, like I've been kind of telling you about, because I think through knowledge, we get better involvement with the public in a positive way. Um, I mean, if you're going to go talk to your legislature about fish, you need to understand a few of the things that we talked about. And I wish there was a better way that we could have outreach. And I'm not a Facebook person. Um, that's the kind of people that I would love to be involved with is people that could put together messaging, if you would, uh, about these kinds of topics and turns and ideas. Sure. Well, and that's, I mean, that's one of the things that we're hoping to accomplish, uh, just with this conversation here, you know, we're going to put it out on social media. It'll be in a lot of different places for people to find it. And so, um, obviously anybody who's listening, you know, sharing this conversation with other people, it sounds like would be a great way to sort of spread some of this information and get it out there. Um, you know, the, the more people that can hear conversations like these, I think the, the more we're going to get the word out, the more participation you're going to see, the more, um, you know, information that, that there's going to be out there, there'll be less, myths being spread people are going to be more aware um so you know sharing conversations like these where you're getting information straight from the source um and it's all good stuff that that's that's a really good way that you can help without putting in too much effort yeah yeah um and and you know we just glazed over um uh, uh, the, the the quality of a, of a female fish's diet is everything for the quality of the eggs that she produces and the quality of the eggs she produces translates to the quality of the fry that come out of that egg and and i saw it this year on little cedar they don't have any perch um we had seven pike nets in the water for five days and caught a total of 10 perch and like i told you before perch are absolutely uh critical for for quality walleye survival at, at all stages and um that's why this these trees in the water thing is is well it's not essential but let me tell you it, it would it would do wonders for the quality of walleye habitat in the state of wisconsin Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, Mike, it's been a pleasure in this conversation, and, and certainly it's it's incredible all of the accomplishments that Wallace Romero has has done for all of our fisheries in the state of Wisconsin over the last, uh, you know, couple decades here and continues to do to this day. So it's been, it's been a great learning experience here. Um, really enjoyed the conversation. And, hey, if it's a down time of the year, that just means you get to go enjoy the resource that you've put so much time and effort into and get out there and catch a few walleyes yourself right you're right <laughs> you're exactly right <laughs> so it's the great best time of year to do that here we're getting into the some of the best fishing of the year here coming up on lake winnebago so uh thanks for your time mike uh, we really appreciate it and i'll let i'll let noah close this out but uh thanks for the conversation tonight problem yeah yeah um I'll echo that. Thank you so much uh, for, for taking the time here. Um, and I mean, you're absolutely welcome back on anytime. You know, if you've got uh, big news to share or anything like that that you want to get out there, we would love to have 
more conversations just like this one. I mean, you know, we kind of touched on a lot of different things, but like you said, we could really go in depth on some of these things. So um, anytime you are more than welcome back. And for anybody who's listening, thank you uh, for listening. Um, our, our podcast is available pretty much anywhere that you get your podcast. It's on YouTube, uh, which is where the majority of our other content is going to be. That would be um, just Buck Fever Outdoors on YouTube. We're also on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Podbean. I mean, pretty much all the, the major podcast platforms. Um, so wherever you're finding this now, if there's somewhere else you'd prefer to get your podcast, we are available there as well. Um, and we bring on a lot of great guests, just like Mike um, this this evening. And um, we have a lot of good conversations about a wide variety of topics. So uh, if, if you're a new listener, um, we'd really appreciate it if you subscribe to our YouTube channel and, and follow along because um, it's just going to help to spread good information like this. So once again, Mike, thank you very much. And to all of our listeners, thank you for listening. And we'll see you guys next time.